Behind the Headlines, the New Israel Fund's podcast sharing insight and analysis from activists in Israel. You're listening to Kalela Lancaster with the July 2016 edition of the New Israel Fund's podcast, Behind the Headlines. With the UK reeling from what is arguably one of the most dramatic decisions taken by the British people in the country's history, London is currently playing host to some heated debate and decision-making in a somewhat different context. Around 70 of the leading thinkers and activists for equality and democracy in Israel, from Israel itself and from around the world, have gathered in London this week for the New Israel Fund's international board meeting. It's the first time that London has ever hosted the grand gathering of the NIF, which happens twice a year, usually in Israel and the US. The international board meeting is the place where NIF's toughest decisions are made, to whom to allocate funding and how much, and inevitably, whose funding must be cut. It's where we take stock, discuss, debate, and analyze the state of things in Israel and assess the impact of our work. Sometimes radical decisions get made because the board takes a long, hard look at things and says, we are winning lots of battles here, but we might be losing the war. Other times, the board hears reports from our grants department in Israel, which are heartwarming and which show that a bold decision paid off. NIF are well known for investing in fledgling initiatives or through Shatil, our initiative for social change, forging unlikely coalitions to advance crucial issues that are not at the mainstream of public opinion. Often, though, the bold decisions taken by NIF at our international board meetings can actually pave the way for broader partnerships. Many of the once radical investment decisions taken by NIF board members have led to pieces of progress in Israeli society that are now muvanim elehem. Rights have been secured and societal attitudes shifted in ways that now seem like an obvious part of Israel's makeup. Many projects that were seed funded by NIF in what may have seemed at the time to be a bit of a gamble have now been brought to scale through new partnerships, often with Israel's own government ministries, and are now part of the landscape of Israel's vibrant civil society. But making these decisions is not easy. Many heated debates are had around questions relating to NIF's strategic priorities, and we are blessed with a board which boasts exceptional expertise, magnificent diversity, strong opinions, and some extremely colourful personalities. We at NIF UK want to give you, our UK supporters, an opportunity to connect with some of these discussions and debates, to share your ideas, to ask your questions of our international leadership and to take your own place at the NIF table. So in this podcast, I'm delighted to be hosting our top brass, Daniel Sokach, NIF's international CEO, and Talia Sasson, NIF's international president. We'll be having a chat about some of the most pressing issues facing Israel today, and most importantly, they will be answering questions which have been tweeted at us or called in by you. So let's get going. Daniel, Talia, welcome. Bochema Baim. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. So you have really chosen your timing to bring the global NIF to London. Brexit is all around us, it's on everyone's minds, and I feel that we need to pay a small mention to this little earthquake that you've landed in. Now, there's been much commentary, much has been said about this over the last couple of days since you've been in London. One of the most powerful pieces of commentary that I've read on what just happened here in the UK came from Charlotte Fisher, a Jewish woman who works at an organization called Citizens UK, uh, the UK's leading organization for community organizing, a little bit like our own Chatil. She pasted a comment on, uh, she posted a comment on Facebook that I want to read out to you. 
She says, whilst I think there were powerful corporate xenophobic right-wing interests behind the Leave campaign, they won by mobilizing millions of working class folk who have basically been screwed for the last 40 years. As a result, I'm not sure it's helpful for lefty metropolitan elites like myself and most of my friends to be obnoxious about the people who voted Leave. Fellow citizens felt they were not cared about by people like myself who live in cities, who rely on industries that haven't closed in the last 40 years and who are mobile in terms of work. This is a moment for the left to take stock and begin the project that we were built out of, recognizing that the world is not equal and improving the conditions of those at the bottom of the pile. So it's a powerful statement from Charlotte, and I felt when I read it that with a few tweaks in language, it could have been written about Israel could have been written about Israel today, where the community of people from across the political spectrum who care about democratic progressive values are arguably struggling to capture the hearts and minds of many people in Israel's geographic, cultural and economic periphery. I'm interested in your response to Brexit and this comment in particular. What parallels, if any, do you see between what's just happened in the UK and the situation in Israel today? Talia, would you like to start with that? All right, thank you for uh, the question. Um, I'm not sure I would agree that it's the same phenomena. And I'm not sure that if it's a similar phenomena, it comes from the same reasons. Um, I'm not an expert about Britain, and it's very difficult for me to explain why it happened here. Of course, as a bystander, I am very sorry for that. Uh, I think it's a loss for Europe, for for the, the world, for us in Israel, and especially for the British people. I think that it is a huge mistake. But uh, I think that while we're talking about referendum, after the referendum, you have to somehow respect the will of the people. Of course, you could ask yourself questions. Why did you do this referendum if it was so necessary and if you couldn't avoid yourself from that? Uh, when we're talking about Israel, uh, I know what you mean. And you mean that the people of Israel, they vote for the right, although the right is not looking after their wealth and uh, doesn't help them very much. Some people would phrase it differently than me, uh, more rude. Um, I think that to explain why in Israel people vote like this, it's because people... It's not that they like so much the right, but they hate the left more. Um, maybe we see in America uh, quite a similar phenomenon. I don't know if uh, the people in America, they love Trump or they love Hillary as much as I heard. They don't like both of them. But I think that some of the people that are voting for one do that because they hate the other one much more. So every state has its own reasons and you need to be focused on that state to, to deal with its uh, problems. 
Well, when it comes to Israel, we did actually get a tweet in from Jonathan Leader, who is one of our activism fellows. He's a young person who's involved in NIF in the UK in leading campaigns uh, and so forth. And he tweeted to us, what is the NIF doing to broaden its base of support across all sectors of Israeli society? I think that question is very relevant to this aspect of discussion. Do you have anything you want to say about it, Daniel? Sure. Well, uh, it's a great question. And about three years ago, uh, we asked ourselves, the board of the New Israel Fund, whether or not we felt that the complement of strategies that we had deployed since our inception in 1979, uh, which was essentially a strategy of, of letting 100 flowers bloom, of funding fantastic civil society organizations that worked in civil rights and human rights and social justice and economic justice and religious freedom and pluralism and and Palestinian-Israeli society and shared society, whether we felt that those incredibly valuable initiatives were in and of themselves enough to meet the challenges being presented by what we identified as a changing landscape in Israel, an Israel that today does not look like the Israel of 20 years ago or 30 years ago or even 15 years ago, but rather one that is shifting demographically, politically, socially in a lot of ways that are very challenging to the values that we hold dear. And the board answered, uh, no, we think that what we do now is still critical and necessary, but it's not enough. And so we began a process that resulted in what we call our new initiatives for democracy, NIFD. And there are two pieces to this. The first one um, goes to your first question. Uh, what do you do to try to amplify progressive voices in civil society? How do you try to give power and, and a sense of agency to progressives and liberals in Israeli society who, like their counterparts in the UK and the US, um, often are are not playing uh, the game uh, and making the arguments as uh, as well as those who are presenting a different set of arguments and values and who are, in fact, letting themselves get suckered into uh, playing on a playing field that the other side is really, uh, is really describing. And so uh, we looked at all kinds of things that had happened uh, in the U.S. and the U.K. and other countries where new institutions were developed that enabled progressives to uh, influence the public debate in a different way. If you look at the issue of marriage equality in the United States, you see a great example of how reframing an issue that was only popular on the liberal coasts, that is to say gay rights, into marriage equality was able to shift the tenor of the debate and ultimately result in real tangible victories. So that was part one of these new initiatives. But part two goes to uh, your tweeter's question. We also recognized that we were, in many respects, um, in Israel, uh, representative of a community that sounded to me like uh, the description of your original of uh, Charlotte, of Charlotte so, yes. right? In that, you know, we were sort of, ur we were the Israeli version of urban lefty folks, or as we call it sometimes, the Tel Aviv bubble. Right. And that if we were not able to meet other groups, other constituencies within Israel who actually share values and even goals with us on many, although certainly not all, of the issues that we're concerned about, if we weren't able to meet them where they were and build new coalitions and new alliances to move forward these ideas, we were not going to win on the ideas that we cared most about. So taking a page out of the playbook also of, 
of some great work that was done in, in other countries and going much more deeply into the kind of work Shatil has always done in trying to build coalitions and reach out to other constituencies. The second pillar of NIFD was a set of new investments in organizations and institutions that have deep roots, for example, in the Mizrahi community in Israel, that have deep roots in the Russian-Israeli community. Uh, and, and, and these are constituencies, again, that on the face of it may not think that they have a lot in common with NIF and the Tel Aviv bubble, but in fact with whom we share not only real values but also real goals. And that is, in the words of one of our board members, a marathon and not a sprint. That's a long-term project, but it's one that we think is essential uh, to move the needle on the issues that we care about most. Right. Thank you very much. And I do think, I mean, personally, I see some parallels, even though the situations are not entirely equatable, but in, in terms of um, the need to take seriously the concerns of peripheral communities. And I know that Shatil and the, and the New Israel Fund are really leading the way in doing that. Um, okay. So um, I want to move to a question by one of our UK board members, broadcast journalist Sarah Peters. My name is Sarah Peters. I've recently joined the New Israel Fund board in the UK because I believe that the NIF is playing a hugely important and much needed role in advancing equality and democracy in Israel. There's a belief gaining ground across the world that the only way to bring about change in Israel is through international pressure, for example, through boycott, divestment and sanctions. And what I'd like to know is what is the New Israel Fund's position on BDS and how should we be presenting that counter view? And I just want to mention to you guys that it is really important to understand the British context that I think that the debates around BDS and the sort of very severe delegitimization of Israel and its right to exist are very strong here. It's a very strong discourse here. Um, so what do you have to say to our board member, the wonderful Sarah Peters? Who wants to start? Tanya? We oppose BDS, first of all. Uh, if you ask my own opinion, I believe that uh, the struggle on Israel's democracy and the two-state solution, which is the only solution that I could see that uh, the state of Israel should do for its own interest, uh, would be led by Israelis from inside Israel. Uh, I don't think that a, uh, outside pressure I don't know, but I don't think that outside pressure is the right answer. Maybe it would uh, be fruitful. I don't know, but I think that the best for Israel is to change its policy from the inside. It's an Israeli matter. It is an uh, Israeli interest. It is in the interest of Israel, for the Israelis, not for the Palestinians. I'm not saying that maybe it uh, serves also the, the Palestinians' interest, but what I suggest to Israelis is to do what is the best for them. The best for them is partition. The best for them is separation between two states. Every people has the right to have its own state. And uh, I think it's for the security of Israel and it's for the health of Israel, for its, uh, the economic of Israel, for every kind, point of view that you would check it, this serves Israeli interests. And what you're saying really is that the way to get there is from creating change from within Israel, and BDS is not constructive for that. I think so. I think that uh, the whole 
issue of BDS, I don't think it's uh, very much influential. And I think that uh, maybe we Israelis, when we describe that as a uh, horrible phenomena, we help the BDS to be a phenomena. Right. It's not. Daniel, I know you want to uh, weigh in on this topic. First of all, Sarah, welcome to the NIF UK board. Talia and I thank you for your service um, and for your question. I, of course, agree with everything that Talia said um, in very simple terms. Uh, NIF is opposed to the global BDS movement. We won't fund organizations that are a part of it. But having said that, now there's a little bit more complex uh, nuance that I think it's worth actually unpacking with the NIF community here in the UK. Uh, first of all, when we talk about pressure on Israel from the outside, there are lots of pressures on Israel that can happen from the outside. We choose uh, to to uh, not truck with the global BDS movement because, as Talia says, we don't think that that's an effective type of pressure, and for lots of reasons, as well as pragmatic ones and strategic ones, we don't think that it's it's actually the right answer uh, on a moral and an ethical level either. But that's not to say that uh, there aren't useful kinds of pressure on Israel that its friends, its best friends, uh, in Europe, in the UK, in the United States, in the American Jewish community. Uh, should not put on Israel. In fact, we think that they should. Tochecha, uh, right, is a is the term from our tradition that means a loving rebuke or a loving critique, and we expect it from our Israeli brothers and sisters when we're uh, when we're acting in ways that they worry about. And and I think that it is absolutely not only within our right, but but in fact the obligation of the global Jewish community to be forthright when we think that things. Uh, in Israel are going off the path. In fact, I'm just going to cut in here because I, I, I mean, I'm aware that we've seen more of this coming from the American community in the last few years, for example, around the NGO bill, uh, where we saw some outspoken critique from quite dominant bodies uh, from the US. The Anti-Defamation League uh, had something to say about it and the uh, pro the, the, the reform movement and, uh, uh, in, in America had something to say about it. So I think that there is a model of constructive pressure on issues relating to the preservation of Israeli democracy and that's not about delegitimizing the state of Israel per se. I think that's absolutely right. And I think that, in fact, um, the reason why uh, more mainstream bodies like the ones that you just named, as well as the administrations in Washington and in London and in European capitals, are increasingly uh, not as shy as they once were about speaking out when they think uh, that there is a problem. Uh, is is because we are making a distinction between legitimate criticism and those uh, folks who would who would, as you said, delegitimize Israel and question its right to exist. But um, indulge me for a quick minute because I actually want to talk about something that I think is difficult to talk about, and you can cut it out of this podcast if no, you want. No, go to use ahead. It. We uh, want the juicy stuff. So <laughs> I was meeting uh, within the last year. I had a meeting with uh, with a very very. Um, renowned, highly renowned American uh, figure. He, he is an academic, was, um, was a major figure at le a leading university, and served before that in a high-level position in American government. I mean, this is a person who really is, in many respects, the smartest person in the room, wherever, wherever he goes. And, uh, and he was interested in the New Israel Fund, and so I had a meeting with him. And, and during this meeting, he, he told me that Israel wasn't really his area of focus. And to the, to the extent that he was involved in the issue, it was really in being what he described as being the liberal voice against BDS on his college campus. 
And he said that there's another uh, well-known professor on that campus who was the more conservative voice against BDS. And so I asked him uh, what he meant by the liberal voice against BDS. I said, does that mean that you are opposed to the global BDS movement, like the New Israel Fund, but you distinguish between that and the right of Israelis to call for a boycott of goods and services uh, coming from the settlements, right? Not Israel, but from the settlements over the Green Line. Or to boycott cottage cheese uh, Well, well, of course, there's a freedom of expression (laughs) issue in Israel. It's a a time-honored tradition. You can boycott cottage cheese. You can boycott stores that are open on Shabbat. Right, but my question to him was, if he was distinguishing between uh, opposing the global BDS movement and uh, and supporting those Israelis who would use uh, boycotts within Israel of the settlement goods and services um, to, to make a political point. And he looked at me and said, I have no idea what you're talking about. So I repeated my question, and he said, I just don't understand what you mean. So then I said, in 2005, a group of Palestinian intellectuals and NGOs uh, issued the global call for boycott, divestment, and sanction from Israel of, of Israel based on the campaign against apartheid South Africa, which called for expelling Israel from all uh, international bodies, cutting trade, uh, cultural, academ- academic, educational, military, intelligence, governmental, touristic ties with Israel, and really isolating Israel in the world until a series of demands were met, um, some of which actually brought into question uh, the, the commitment of those, of those boycotters to Israel's existence as a, as a state. I said, NIF opposes that movement for all the reasons that are implicit there. In 2010, I continued, a group of Israel's leading artists and performers took out full-page ads in the Hebrew press, and they published a letter that they had written, which said essentially, we the undersigned, as patriots and Zionists, refuse to play at the state-built theater in Ariel, a large settlement in the Northern West Bank, because we believe the settlement enterprise is national suicide for our country, and we call upon uh, other artists of conscience to join us, for Israel's sake, in refusing to play over the green line in the settlements. And the guy looked at me and he said, well, of course I have no problem with that. Nobody has a problem with that. And I said, well, actually, sir, the Israeli government has conflated those two things with a law that it passed in 2011 and which was upheld by the High Court of Justice. And now it is a a civil offense, a tort for any Israeli not only to support the global BDS movement, but also to support uh, calls for Israeli calls for boycotting the settlements uh, as, as, a, as a means of economic protest. And, you know, I think at first his reaction was that can't be possibly true. Uh, but, but of course, when we look at this issue of BDS, we're all, you know, reacting to BDS. In, in fact, in many respects, the BDS movement is, uh, is in agreement with the current leadership of the state of Israel that there is no green line. Because for the BDS movement, you may as well boycott all of Israel because there's no difference between Tel Aviv and Ariel. And for the current government of Israel and its supporters abroad, you cannot boycott Ariel because there's no difference between Tel Aviv and Ariel. And for those of us who still in Israel and in the diaspora, including, by the way, the governments of every state that Israel is allied with, as well as the official position of most Jewish communities who do distinguish between the Israeli side of the Green Line and the side of the Green Line that, whatever you call it, even by Israel's definition, is not Israel, right? This is a very tricky question. And the attempt to conflate those two things, I think, is something that we have to, as difficult as it is, be rigorous in explaining and, and resisting. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that really full 
and nuanced answer. And I think that it just underscores the extent to which, you know, there's this expression in Israel, Dvarim she'eroim mikan lo'eroim sham. Things that you see from here, you don't see from there. And I think that, um, you know, I myself came back to the diaspora just a year ago and also had to do a switch barosh. I also had to do a little bit of a switch in the way I see things uh, insofar as the discourses that are surrounding people in the diaspora are very different from the realities in, in, in Israel and the discourses and the political pressures that people are under in Israel. And it's our job at NIF to be that bridge. And that's really the important thing. And I think that was really helpful, that answer, uh, uh, because it's complex. But we don't have any organization that calls for a boycott on the settlement. There's the irony no. of it all. After all uh, that. We, we don't have any organization that this question is raised and we need to decide upon. In tachlis, in practical terms, yeah. this matter doesn't even matter. Yeah. But... It does, because it's a matter of people's perceptions and opinions and, and fundamental worldviews and values. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. I'm going to move on to a question about the Israel-Diaspora relationship. Um, uh, you're gonna, it's, it's an interesting angle on issues regarding this relationship. It, it, you're going to hear from uh, Rabbi Charlie Beginsky. Uh, head of the New Israel Desk at the Alliance of the Movement for Reform Judaism and Liberal Judaism. She shared her thoughts earlier about the challenges of engaging the diaspora in general and the progressive diaspora communities in particular with Israel. Here's what she has to say about it. As a progressive diaspora community, we are giving much thought to the ways in which we can reinvigorate our relationship with Israel. How important do you think it is for the progressive movement to develop a religious language to talk about Zionism and claim involvement with Israel as part of their religious identity? Should this be matched by Israeli society also giving some thought and articulation to their relationship with diaspora and trying to be more creative than previous models of engagement? Talia, do you feel ready to start? <laughs> All right. I feel uh, ready for Talia to start. <laughs> <laughs> He's so generous, you see. <laughs> you can well, address either or both aspects of yeah, that question. Yeah, I, I will address the first one, I think. Uh, look, I don't uh, accept the involvement of religions with policy matters. The Zionist movement was a secular movement. You could be uh, religious in your home, in your way of behavior, whatever it is, but don't involve policy matters with religion. Policy matters are related to interest of the state, to pragmatic uh, uh, considerations. And when you bring into the conversation God, then you can't, you can't implement democracy. So that's a strong singular view on this question. And I'm interested to see if Daniel has the exact same take or if it's a little bit different. Well, two Jews, three opinions. So I have a slightly different take, but I'll speak from the diasporic position. I think Talia was clearly speaking to the Israeli, the Israeli experience, which, uh, and in that, you know, look, what can I say? I'm a, I'm an old, I'm, I'm, I'm a Yank, you know, com coming from the British tradition. So I, I, I'm with Talia there. I think He's admitted it. I have. Oh, yeah. I, I think things would be infinitely better if some authentic indigenous Israeli decoupling 
of religion and state um, became part of the national project. As the great, you know, um, philosopher Leibovitz said, not just because of the uh, the 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 uh, negative impact that that the religion will have on the state, but because of the negative impact the state is having on the religion. So I, I actually am with Talia there when it comes to Israel, although as not as a non-Israeli, uh, I will defer to her in that matter. Um, when it comes to the diaspora, where where Israel has become for so many Jews almost a fundament of Jewish identity, uh, equal to, if not greater than, um, their connection to their religion, at least up to a point, uh, up to a generational point. I think that is increasingly less the case for younger Jews. And I think that's what Rabbi Charlie is getting at. Yeah. There, I think things are a little bit different, and and there, where our religious identity in 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 the diaspora, in the diasporic Jewish communities, is obviously for many reasons very different than that in Israel, in part because we do have, uh, well, we have a total, and you have a basic uh, separation of synagogue and church and state. Um, you know, we 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 are in a way freer to ex- express that in different ways, and there. I think the rabbi's onto something that for those Jews who choose to connect to their Jewishness and their and their Judaism through uh, through religion through through traditional or or non traditional Jewish religious uh, pathways, then I think that there is an opportunity and maybe even an obligation to find a way to connect uh, to Israel using uh, a, a new vocabulary of of what that means. Um, but there are plenty of diasporic Jews who still search for a, a meaningful connection to Israel, or at least a way to wrestle with Israel, for whom a religious vocabulary will not be, at least not in and of itself, sufficient. And for those folks, I mean, I think that there need to be a multitude of doorways into Israel. But whether you're looking from uh, from the position of people trying to engage young Jews in their shuls with an Israel vision that they believe in, or the infinitely harder task of trying to find um, young Jews who are not in shuls, because where do you find them? Uh, and tr- and trying to engage them with Israel, I think either way, um, we actually know part of what compels, certainly in the U.S. and I'm guessing also in the U.K., young Jews who are who are again social justice minded, politically liberal um, uh, uh, people on all kinds of issues, and engaging them with their brothers and their sisters in Israel who are working on the issues that they care about in their own countries uh, is a powerful, powerful catalyst for engagement. When I speak to young Jews, I say that, you know, you and I were too young to be part of the civil rights movement. Um, and we were too young to remember the great optimistic days of the, of the Zionist and Israeli enterprise. But right now in Israel is an Israeli civil rights movement, essentially, and it needs your help. Yeah. Right, just as the civil rights movement in the American South would never have succeeded without the partnership and support of those folks in the North who were who were sympathetic, so too uh, will the Israeli civil rights and social justice movement not succeed Absolutely. if we don't stand shoulder to shoulder. Absolutely, and I think that the uh, the values that uh, would lead people to want to. Uh, uh, be connected to those issues are present in the Jewish tradition and they're present in Western democratic traditions and so forth. One final question. Um, I want to share with you a great initiative by a wonderful group of people here in the UK. It's a group of young-ish people who are part of the Masorti community here, what you call conservative in America, who got together and set up a giving circle, which they call a Keren Ketana. Each month, they meet and discuss different pressing issues in Israeli society and collectively decide where to direct their donation. All the projects they give to are NIF grantees. One of their members, Nick Schlagman, 
called in earlier and asked us this. I'm interested to know which issues that NIF are working on they feel are moving forward in a positive direction. I think that our Karen Katana are interested to get behind issues that are having impact and to bolster issues that are getting traction as our limited contribution is not able to make significant change on its own. What do you have to say to Nick and his Karen Katana? Well, you, you have the father and mother of NIF here. We can't, we, you can't ask us to choose which of our children. We, we, look, I would say to the, first of all, I love this idea and it's an adorable name and a great, great idea. And, and, Kolakavod for for doing that, and thank you. Look, I really think that the the Karen Katana um, should take a look at the tafrit at the menu of of things that which is a huge one, which is a huge one, and, and really f- and really ask which which feels like the right fit. I mean, I would say that um, you know one way of asking that question is what what are the issues that we think have the best chance for success? Another way is what are the issues that I think are most in need of, of support and love and partnership from abroad? Um, in and some, another way is what do I care about the most? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and, and, and I mean by that, the Karen Katana, not yes, me and Talia, yeah, right? Yes, yeah. um, but I think that, you know, for example, our shared society uh, work is, a, is, is work that we consider to be extraordinarily critical, no matter what the geopolitics are. And obviously, we have a shared vision of a of, of an Israel living at peace, or fighting racism, yeah, yeah, the- or defending people that are going to to the street for protest and give them some legal aid, defending that, their that, right to protest. Yes, yeah. this is what we do. And these are all these things working oh, for shared society. This is just small <laughs> examples. Freedom we of expression. A lot of yeah, yeah. The, these are the kinds of things that we that we have critical need for. And um, I actually think have a dimension beyond just the monetary investment. I love Talia's example of the work that we do in, in, in protecting freedom of expression in Israel right now. When uh, Israelis who are, are increasingly and, and almost unthinkably uh, facing a set of challenges that in Israeli society they never faced before, Right, whether you are uh, an activist with Women of the Wall who is being arrested for, for doing what Women of the Wall have been doing for 20-some-odd years, or you are protesters uh, protesting for uh, social justice or for human rights or against the occupation, when the response of the state is increasingly uh, attempts to silence or chill or even uh, frighten those protesters into not doing what they're doing by arresting them or passing new legislation that makes it, as we said earlier, uh, a civil offense to say certain things. It is incredibly heartening for those Israelis who are pushing back against that anti-democratic vector to know that they have brothers and sisters here in the UK who say, our contribution is small in terms of the number, but it is big in terms of the heart and spirit with which we make it, and we're with you, we have your back. Yeah. Thank yeah. you so much. Yes, Talia. One yeah, yeah. No, I, what I what I meant is that uh, giving the money is not less important than giving the support, the loud support. We support democracy. We support all the people that are fighting for democracy. Speaking in out. Speak out. Thank you so much. And on that note, thank you for speaking out with us through our podcast. We really appreciate. It. We know that you're in an incredibly tight schedule here in London. Go, enjoy London. See you tomorrow for the board meeting. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the New Israel Fund Behind the Headlines podcast. 